Um, hello, welcome to Seattle on Tap. I am Courtney Jacobson. I'm Ashley Toten. Hello. Hello. <laughs> happy, well, Wednesday for us, but happy Monday to all. <laughs> Good night. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Good night to, I don't know. <laughs> it's not Christmas. <laughs> How's it going? Uh, it's going. It is definitely going. It's nice, but too hot for me in Seattle right now. Yeah. It was very hot the other day. It's almost 100 degrees. I know. It was, I mean, I loved it, but. <laughs> I was working and sweating a lot. It was oh, God. Yeah. If I were at work, I would have been like, fuck the world. Why are these people here? Don't you people have somewhere that has water to jump in? <laughs> all I wanted to do all day was swim. Yeah, that's what I did all day. I was like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my little brother turned 30. So we uh, got to yeah, he's 10 years younger than me, so <laughs> do the math. No, um, yeah, we got together at my mom's house, had some brunch on her back deck, and she lives on a lake, so for the first time in the year and a half she's owned that house, we all enjoyed swimming in the lake. It was really, really awesome. That's nice, too, because you can distance pretty well doing it that way too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just hung, it was, you know, so hot that every once in a while, I mean, we never hung out inside because who wants to be inside when it's so nice? And yeah, we just had some snacky foods all day out on the back deck. And then every now and again, we'd be like, well, I'm hot enough to jump in the water now. <laughs> Anybody else? <laughs> pretty great last night you saw pictures of it already last night daniel and i carved some mini watermelons i freaking I love it <laughs> I them out in the park that was pretty fun i love it i know i always every year when you guys do that for halloween with pumpkins and you set them in the park i was like oh yeah oh wait aren't they worried that somebody's gonna destroy them but like i mean it's a given and that's kind of part of the fun i guess yeah, I mean, it bums me out, but you know, it's going to happen. However, today I wake up and I go walk the dog and walk by where they are and they're tipped over, but they're not fucked up. And I look inside, somebody took the lid over to steal the candles. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okie dokie then, I guess, <laughs> I guess they just won't have light. I wonder if it was a park worker worried that they're like the led ones the like flicker oh. fake candles. yeah that's weird then that's super yeah. weird <laughs> oh well i have a bunch more maybe i'll just light them up again tonight <laughs> the battle yeah <laughs> mm. had to take a drink of my delicious beer I should be what? this is really good i'm gonna end up Oh, I just had to take a drink of my delicious beer because. So what is it? Tell it, us. It is. I actually should get out my notes here because I have that. So this is Cape Traffic um, from Stellwagen Beer Company in Marshfield, Massachusetts. Um, it is their... Uh, what are they calling it? The South Shore IPA. And because, you know, we all know who I am and what I love. It's a hazy IPA and it's, it's nice and fruity. Um, and this will definitely surprise you. <laughs> Not at all. Um, there's a lot of mosaic hops in there. <laughs> Uh, there's also Sabro and Simcoe hops, so really citrusy, really, yeah. Um, and they say that it has beach-ready flavors, bright flashes of pineapple and coconut shine across the palate, while 
tangy mandarin and ripe grapefruit swim through the ultra soft body. Oh, I know that makes me want to hang out on the beach now. But yeah, it's a uh, 6.5 ABV. So not too crazy unless you're my mom. I had a conversation. <laughs> she was, <laughs> she's like, Ooh, this one's 4.2%. This is pretty high. I'm like, Oh, you must laugh when you hear us talk about <laughs> the beers. She's like, yeah, I do. <laughs> oh <laughs> so what are you drinking? I'm kind of excited about what I'm drinking because uh, I just found out a few days ago that our local brew pub, Elliott Bay. Okay. I saw and a of that on your watermelon post. I was like, I didn't know they canned beer. <laughs> they just started. They have three different ones. Um, the one I chose to drink today because I was in the mood for a hazy IPA. You're welcome. <laughs> Everybody, we we're back to doing the same stuff again <laughs> um this is the elliot bay north atlantic haze ipa mm. yeah it's really good um it's a really bright and fruity new england style ipa with plenty of malt to balance out that fruit so it's still got the piney yeah of an ipa but very fruity still okay this IPA is brewed with an heirloom farmhouse yeast strain, which also lends a little funk. It's pretty damn tasty. Oh, it's also nice. It's what? 5.1%. Okay. I already had two. I'm creeping up on two here. <laughs> It'll be fun today. <laughs> uh, also, five IBU. Nice. Good. Yeah. Um, so you are going first today. Um, so you got a bummer for me? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we took our little power break, um, and I had been trying to lighten up a little bit, and then I just realized that there's no fun in that. So, <laughs> I mean, why deny who you are? <laughs> be the party pooper all right <laughs> i'm uh fluffing my my soundproofing back here aka the load of towels that i did <laughs> you well i'm fluffed i'm good i'm ready hopefully <laughs> hopefully we won't have interruptions like when we were talking before recording <laughs> you know what I mean? garbage trucks kids etc um <laughs> the kid Okay. So this story is 100% what true crime nightmares are made of. Ooh. It is one of the stories that has made my practice of carrying a taser seem valid. And one of the stories responsible for me for being on high alert when I'm alone or out secluded places all the fucking time. Oh, shit. Today, my story is about the serial killer, Jerry Burdos. Even more terrifying, all of this happened right here in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> Jerry Burdos was born Jerry Jerome Henry Burdos on January 31st, 1939 in Webster, South Dakota. He was the youngest of two boys in his family. Um, and as a younger child, his family would relocate to the Pacific Northwest, living in several areas, but eventually ended up settling in Salem, Oregon. Hmm. His family life was said to be pretty abusive. Evidently, his mom was like really vocal about having wanted their second kid to be a daughter and not a son and would not hesitate to remind him of this his entire life. That's what happened to my dad, kind of. Like his so dad basically, he didn't want a third child. And so my dad's whole life, he just always told him that he was the unwanted kid. That's, Ugh, that's so the person so bad. Really? Anyway, sorry. <laughs> but can yeah. really fuck people. Why would you ever say that to them? They didn't shoot. Yeah, I don't. We could go on that for hours. Really good. So at the age of five, Jerry, for whatever fucking reason, was in a local junkyard, 
um, and found a pair of stiletto high heels amongst the mess out there and was fascinated with them. He decided to keep them and he would play with them until his parents finally discovered them and took them away. And I'm sure, as you can imagine, with how unwelcoming his mother was in general, mm-hmm. they were not very friendly about their little boy that they wished was a girl dressing like a girl. I mean, make up your mind, really. <laughs> it's like, I, anyway. <laughs> Um, so Jerry decided to make a few more attempts to find new playthings after that happened and decided to steal the shoes from his first grade teacher. Mm. And then later steal the lady's shoes and underwear from neighbors. Oh. Like, this is steal their shit, basically. Well. <laughs> Seems innocent enough. I'm not saying that stealing's okay, but not too crazy. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, then as a teenager, he would start to stalk local women. And to be honest, this is not funny, but when I read one of the stories, it made me laugh out loud because I was, it was reminding me of like Mario Kart for some reason, which is not the right visual to have. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He would knock them down and steal their shoes. Oh, okay. Just move them and steal their shoes and run away. Like how you be if you were just walking down the street and some dude just shoves you over and steals your shoes and runs off i'd be pissed i'd be so oh my god <laughs> I, would, I mean it's me so i would be super pissed and go chase them and like i generally have a case and a taser on me so you know things would happen but i'm not normal <laughs> either way <laughs> so that was 17 things escalated he abducted a teenage girl. He was also a teenager, obviously. He mm-hmm. made her sit down and pose while he took pictures of her. And while this was happening, he was threatening to kill her if she did not do whatever he said. And there was a few mm-hmm. conflicting reports that he may have physically assaulted her also, not sexually, but like that her did like something yeah. like that. Get her to submit. Yeah. Um, obviously, after this happened, he was arrested. And he ended up being sent to Oregon State's uh, hospital's psychiatric ward. Hmm. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia. Uh, and it was also discovered that his sexual fantasies, which included violence towards women and wearing women's clothes and underwear um, and shoes and things, all stemmed from the hatred of his mother, which, duh. Like, there you go. Yep. Mm-hmm. Typical. <laughs> Pretty textbook, probably. Um, during the time he was in the psychiatric ward, which was about nine months, he was allowed release every day to continue to go to school. So they actually let him go to high school still, but he had to come back immediately after. Um, and he, oh my God. I would, it's like basically his whole senior year, he was in a psychiatric ward when he wasn't at school. Like that's like terrifying to even think about. I mean, on so many levels, like being the parent, knowing that there's a legit crazy person in your kid's school that especially if you're a parent of a daughter <laughs> yeah. or I mean how mean kids are so for him kids finding out yeah oh man <laughs> well he ended up graduating with his class in 1957 and shortly after his partially with the recommendation from his psychiatrist encouraged him to leave his parents' house and go out on his own and start his own life. They thought that might help him. Hmm. So he did. He went off and he started a career as an electrician. And then in 1961, Jerry would marry, he was 22 at the time, by the way, he would marry a 17-year-old girl with whom he would end up having two children. Oh. He would ask his new wife to do housework around the house naked, except for a pair of high heels while he took pictures of her. Okay. Well, I mean, everybody's got home life. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Um, However, soon after their honeymoon phase, if you will, Jerry would start demanding his wife give him privacy and began spending quite a lot of time in the garage alone. He would also demand she was not ever allowed to come into the garage without permission, making him use an intercom to ask for permission and then to wait for the permission before entering. Oh, fuck that. Hello. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's no way in hell I'd be going for that. Like, um, we're married. This is my house too. You can fuck right off. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, it was also around this time that his wife uh, and he stopped being intimate. It was suggested that his fetishes, including wear wearing women's full clothing, by this time he was completely dressing like a woman and walking around yeah. the house. Um, but that all got to be maybe too much of a suggestion. And I can only assume that the more comfortable he was once they got married and being in the same house as her, he probably started to his fucking weird out because he's a yeah. I wrote in my notes, she was probably like, oh no. <laughs> oh, what did I do? <laughs> uh, I am going to give you a hint, by the way. He needed his privacy, but it wasn't for woodworking or anything wholesome at all. Yeah, I mean, woodworking of some sort, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so then one glorious January day in 1968, 19-year-old Linda Slauson, who was an encyclopedia salesperson, came knocking on Jerry's door. The day that she came by, Jerry's mother was actually visiting and was in the house with his kids while he answered the door. Linda would end up giving her whole sales spiel, and Jerry pretended to be interested in making a purchase, then lured her into his basement to privately talk. Hmm. Uh, well, his family was right upstairs, by the way. Like, not much separating them. Cool. Upon yeah. it, he knocked her clean out with a wood plank and then began strangling her. Wow. He did. She was dead by this time. He proceeded to dress her in the different underwear and shoes from all the women he had stolen from. Uh. And posing her provocatively, and then decided to use a hacksaw to remove one of her feet, which he kept in his freezer to model his shoes. No. Yes. <laughs> no. Nothing. You know, bodies don't tend to stay too fresh too long, so he didn't keep her for very long. He did keep the foot. And the rest of her, he just threw into the Willamette River. Then, about four months later, in, the, in May of 1958, 18-year-old Karen Sprinker was out having a nice shopping day at a local department store when out in the parking lot, she suddenly found herself being held at gunpoint by Jerry Burdos. He was dressed in women's clothing during his attack and he ended up bringing her back to his house, took her in a garage where he forced her to try on and pose in the underwear and shoe collection Ugh. and proceeded to take photographs of her. He then raped her and then hung her by the neck while she was still alive on a pulley. Oh, God. And elevated her, strangling her to death. So that lady died, had a very brutal death. She wow. And she was only, you said 18? 19? Uh, 18. Oh my god. After her death, he continued to have sex with her body on multiple occasions. He mm -hmm. then also cut off her breasts and used them to make plastic molds. Jerry then tied her body to a car engine and threw her into the same river, Willamette River. Yeah. He's a real treat, this guy. Uh, His next victim was 23-year-old Jan Susan Whitney, and Jan was traveling for the Thanksgiving holiday on November 26, 1968. It was like two days before Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. She was on I-5, somewhere between Salem and Albany, Oregon. Then a passing motorist stopped because her car just suddenly shit the bed. The passing motorist stops to help her. Oh, no. Her ride to his house to call a tow truck. Mm. We got it. It was Jerry. Yeah. <laughs> he accepted his offer, offer and wasting no time, Jerry strangled her in the car. Like they didn't even leave. He immediately strangled her in the car with a leather strap. I'm so and glad for cell phones right now. <laughs> like that that alone is like one of my fucking horrific nightmares. Yeah. So <sighs> once he had killed her in the car, raped her before they even left the scene. Ugh. Yes. Uh, this time, he left her hanging from a pulley in the garage for several days. During the time, he dressed her up, continued having sex with her, and photographing her. Similarly, and he removed one of Jan's breasts, which he actually made a resin mold of and used it as a paperweight. What the hell? Like his other victim, the Willamette River tied to a railroad iron. Okay. Then, <laughs> are you feeling okay? 
<laughs> like, uh. <laughs> then in April 1989, he makes two more attempts to abduct two young ladies, both of whom thankfully got away. The first was on April 21st, and her name was Sharon Wood, um, and she was held in the basement level of a parking garage in Portland. And then the next day, he attempted to abduct Gloria Smith, who was only 15 at the time. And then the very next day, so 22nd, 20, the 21st, 22nd, and now the 3rd of so, April in 1969. Yeah. What's that? I said, so he was very determined. Oh, yeah. Um, on April 23rd, 1969, 22-year-old Linda Saley was, I believe it's Saley, it's, it's got to be how it's pronounced, it's Saley or Saley, one of the two, Okay. was abducted from a shop parking lot, um, and he brought her back to the garage where he raped and killed her, sparing some details because we already fucking get it. Right. I don't wanna... Awful, awful. Uh, it's fucking terrible. Uh, he proceeded to, quote, play with her corpse. But rather than cutting off her breasts because he said, quote, they were too pink, he decided to try to run electrical currents through her body to see if he could make it move. And when that didn't work and he was done playing with her, he weighed her down with another car part and threw her into the river. Like, these were like dolls to him. And Yeah. Like science experiments. What? Yeah, that's awful. In May of that year... A fisherman would discover the bodies of Karen, the first, not the first Karen. This is, um, I realized when I was doing this, I kept writing Karen, and then I was like, oh, there's two Karens. Um, <laughs> uh, so Karen Sprinker. Uh, yeah. A fisherman found Karen and Linda floating in the river. Uh, police began their investigation with, I'm sorry, I meant there was two Lindas. I'm sorry. I, oh, yeah, okay. My brain. Uh, anyway, floating in a river. Police began their investigation, um, and with college campus being really, really close by, they decided to ask around and see if anybody noticed anything suspicious. Anybody standing out in the lines. And evidently, a couple of students who, for, I had conflicting reports, but one of them was listed to be a roommate of one of the victims found. But okay. it may have just been Okay. Uh, he said that an older man who claimed to be a Vietnam vet had been looking for a date and basically asked her out and her roommate out. Um, and her friend was like, I'm good. I don't want to do it. But her buddy said, yeah, I'll go. So she date with them and ended up getting home and being like, uh, I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. But that guy's, I don't know if I'm into him. He's a little off. Smart. What she Very smart. Very smart. And then upon hearing that information, police asked her, hey, would you be willing to call that guy back and see about getting a second date with him? And she was like, uh, I guess. So she calls and says, you know what, I've had a change of heart. I'd love to go out with you sometime. But when Jerry arrived to meet her, because surprise, that's who the man was, was Jerry. Yeah. Police asked him, <laughs> to the station they were there to sabotage the police were waiting and not the girl heck yeah heck yeah <laughs> shortly after his arrest jerry would make a full confession like they basically were like hey do you know anything about the disappearance of these women and he was like i killed them and two others i also did this and did that like he did not fucking hesitate to just throw himself under the bus wow so, so far, they'd only had the bodies of Karen and Linda, but he confessed to all of the abductions and attempted abductions. Huh. On June 8th of 1969, he pled guilty to third degree, first degree murder charges, one for each, Karen Sprinker, Jan Susan Whitney, and Linda Saley. He confessed, but was never charged in the case of Linda Slauson, his first victim, because she was the only one he didn't photograph. Oh, uh, doing things. They had no physical evidence and her body was she was also the only one he never weighed down. So she probably like drifted. Maybe she was away. one of those disarticulated feet. Christ. <laughs> 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 um, during one of his uh, 
his trips to dispose of another victim's body because my first thought was, how is that possible? He saved that foot of hers. Yeah. gotten rid of it. Even if you keep things in a freezer, they tend to not last forever. So he switched it with another body. Um, so it could have been one of the detached feet. It's very possible. <laughs> um, <laughs> Shortly after his conviction, the body of Jan Susan Whitney was found only about a mile downstream for where he had thrown her in, which is so sad. She was right there the whole time. Uh During his incarceration, Jerry would keep piles of catalogs for women's shoes and undergarments, and he claimed that they were his pornography. Okay. He would go on to request several appeals, one of which he said the photograph of him with one of his, his victims could not prove his guilt because it was not the body of a person he was convicted of killing. Which, when I read that, I'm like, does that mean he actually admitted to more persons that since they couldn't prove any of them, they didn't? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get enough time to research all of that. I'm very curious to know. If anybody else happens to be a professional subject, holla. Let- if anyone um, is a professional in this, <laughs> can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. Uh, finally, in 1995, the parole board informed Jerry he would never be released from prison. And to be honest, they were probably like, dude, you're fucking not cake. Please stop fucking bugging us. Yeah. So never let it. You're so wasting you time and money. Just go sit in a yeah. corner and rot. <laughs> So Jerry would spend 37 years in the Oregon Department of Corrections, which at the time was the longest incarceration of any inmate in the facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, ended up finally dying on March 28th, 2006 of liver cancer. That dude, wow. the March of 2006 is when I adopted Uki. Oh, wow. But I also was like, that's a long fucking time that dude lived in prison. Yeah. Considering, like, it, it once you go to prison, your life expectancy goes way down. Oh, yeah. I yeah. also, I'm so sad that they never found Linda Lawson's body. Like, yeah. Would have been able to by now. Even, I mean, skeletal remains, but still. It makes you wonder, well, I could go off on several tangents, but it's the whole, like, if people didn't have, have baby, if they weren't forced to have a baby they didn't want in the first place, or, you know, what would have happened? Maybe, you know, well, women weren't married, or I mean, weren't murdered, and um, maybe if his parents just treated him somewhat kindly. None of this would have happened. Yeah. Oh, man. Or if they just adopted him to a family. I'm like, on him why didn't you just fucking adopt him out yeah bananas it's Ugh. man i don't want, i don't want to get into like a whole bunch of heavy political shit but right. i i find it and i realize times were different but again adoption was always an option but yeah folks had kids because they didn't want to be disowned by religious parents or whatever yeah like blame their kids and look it out on them so unfair yeah that's i think women should have choices that's all i'll say choices Choices are important to have um yeah is your story a nice story or a bad story (laughs) um well good things came of it people died though (laughs) <laughs> but it's from 101 and at, like almost 102 years ago so you know we don't have to feel too I don't know we should take a quick quick break I'm gonna go um I almost drank all my beer so uh-huh. <laughs> I'm gonna grab another one <laughs> It might be a free kind of beer day for me. <laughs> Should be. So, ready, brick.
again. So I didn't realize that while we were talking and telling story, your fourth story, um, Layla had slid this paper under the door because she so desperately wants me to read the story she wrote. So it's pretty cute. <laughs> I thought you were going to say it was her list of demands. Well, I demand. She just verbally gives me those. Mom, I want you to buy me a boy Barbie because Ruby has a boy Barbie. And when we play wedding, um, I don't have any boy Barbies. And I'm like, well, your girls could get married. She's like, yeah, but that's boring. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you have no idea. It's probably... So much more exciting. <laughs> Boys are boring. Okay. I'll tell you my story. Um, what's that? Slash excited. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to tell you about the Great Boston Molasses Flood. Oh, shit. <laughs> I love this story. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when we think of historic Boston, generally people think of two specific things, like Paul Revere's ride or the Tea Party stuff. So both of those happened in this same exact area. Um, the Okay, so this was the... Great Molasses Flood of 1919, so 101 years ago. Um, on January 15th, 1919, a giant molasses holding tank, um, and by giant, I mean 50 feet tall and 90, 90 feet wide. So a couple of buildings, basically. Um, <clears throat> It had been filled to the top of its 2.3 million gallon capacity just the day before. Um, and on that day, it burst open. Oh. Uh, yeah. So a few factors went into this. Um, one of which, when... I mean, if you know anything at all about molasses, you know that it is a very slow-flowing liquid. So they would heat the molasses in order to transport it from barrels or whatever they shipped it in into this ginormous holding tank a little bit quicker because 2.3 million gallons is a fuck ton. That's like, that's how much of, in case we ever wondered how much a fuck ton is, it's 2.3 million gallons. Also, it's January 15th, so it's, it's winter in Boston. Which is goddamn well, free. Yeah, and well, it was the day, so it was January 14th when they actually put it in there. It was winter in Boston, so cold is the opposite of hell, I guess. I don't know. Um, <laughs> cold is heaven? I, I don't know. Okay, going, moving on. Um, so heating, cooling, things like that happening. Um, so uh, it was... About 12.30 in the afternoon, lunchtime-ish, on January 15th, when a tsunami of molasses destroyed the harbor area in the north end of Boston. Um, the three-story engine firehouse was torn from its foundation, just like, scoop, <laughs> moving over. <laughs> um three firefighters were actually trapped inside and had to fight to stay, keep their heads above the, not waters, but molasses. Um, I just, I can't even imagine trying to, I mean, it's like 
a mudslide, basically trying to swim sort of above that. If you've ever used molasses, your immediate, because it's such a small amount, your immediate thought is, it's like an Austin Powers moment of like this slow black goo coming out. Like, no, but you have plenty of time to burn it. Exactly. Like that much of it is not, no, it's going to fucking destroy things. Mm-hmm. Um, buildings of nearby North End Paving Yard were completely reduced to rubble. Um, a piece of the tank itself was pushed into the nearby elevated railway tracks that, and it broke heavy steel girders. So this is essentially like a a big bridge that trains went over to get down to the harbor where this was. And, you know, those aren't made of flimsy materials and it broke it. Um, and it almost forced an approaching northbound train off of the tracks, but luckily it was, you know, a timing thing and it, they were able to stop. Um, all in all, the disaster killed 21 people and injured 150 others. Horses and dogs in the area were also killed. There were stables. There was a f- slaughterhouse in the area. I mean, it was a one of the most highly um, bustling areas of Boston. It was the main, if anything left Boston to go up or down the coast or to Europe, it left from that port right there. So constant, constant hustle and bustle. Um, That molasses, because there was so much of it leaving L at once, traveled at 35 miles an hour you said it it moves so slow so if you can imagine the force that took to make that go 35 miles an hour fucking crazy um so the tank itself was owned by purity distilling company and had only been constructed just three years prior in an attempt to boost production in a short time Um, The molasses had once been processed um, into alcohol that was used for munitions, so not a drinking alcohol, but a very high proof, very explosive alcohol to, because it was World War I. But World War I had ended, so... um, they started changing things over to um they retooled and did everything to where they were now going to produce rum because obviously um however with the beginning of prohibition looming in the future just like within the next year they're like oh shit (laughs) We need to hurry up and produce as much as we possibly can because, I mean, demand was insanely high. All these people were like, well, if we already have it bought, we can drink it at home, you know. Um, (laughs) So people were just buying everything they could, meaning they, these guys were like, well, we need to produce as much as possible so we can make some money in our company and then figure out what else to do. Um, So... Um, I'm talking past my notes here. Uh, okay. So this means that when they built the extra huge tank, they never actually tested it before just going ahead and using it because they were in, they were on a time crunch. They're like, we're, we have this shipment coming on this day and it looks like we might be done by the day or two beforehand. So that works. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) Um, or done with construction on the the tank. So um, it was said that leaks had sprouted in the tank pretty much from day one. Um, Nothing crazy though, but it was just kind of a constant slow, obviously, oozing out of the tank to the point where locals would even come by with their own cans and jars and just kind of fill up, be like, hi. (laughs) And... Because at the time, 
there we didn't use high fructose corn syrup and i mean molasses was a mainstay in people's kitchens to sweeten things up and use for baking and and everything yeah instead of borrowing a cup of sugar from your neighbor you'd borrow a teaspoon of molasses (laughs) um or just go over to the ginormous holding tank and scrape some off of there um local kids would even ride their bikes over and grab a stick and then wrap it wipe it in the goo and then have molasses suckers um yeah so some locals though they saw this the fact that it was leaking as an issue and they worried that maybe the leaks would get worse yeah you know and so they went and complained to the purity distilling company um and so the purity distilling company's solution was well if we paint the tank brown (laughs) won't be able to tell that it's leaking it'll all just blend in yes (laughs) it cost way less than fixing it and it won't take nearly as much time I mean, they weren't wrong. Yeah. (laughs) So, okay. That's what they did. (laughs) Um, So, after that didn't work and the thing collapsed and murdered people, um, (laughs) the first people on the scene to help the injured were 116 sailor cadets under the direction of Lieutenant Commander H.J. Copeland from the USS Nantucket. Um, It was a training ship of the Massachusetts Nautical School. It's now still there, but it's called the Massachusetts Maritime Academy. Um, So all these guys ran in, they headed straight for the disaster. And um, as they get to the area, they're wading knee deep into this gurgling, sticky mess to pull out survivors. Um, And they also were helping to kind of keep, you know, people wondering what the hell was that coming over and getting in the way of their their rescue efforts. Um, The sailor cadets were soon joined by the Boston police, Red Cross workers and army personnel Uh, When the medical examiner arrived, he said the bodies that had been pulled out and were, you know, waiting for him to come over and be like, yep, they're dead. Um, They looked like they'd been covered in oil skins and their ears, nose, mouth, eyes covered and filled with molasses, just like. Yeah. for a long time but my hand you got molasses on your hands you'd have to like really fucking run them under hot water because it would just coat you yeah you have to like soak (laughs) yeah yeah. um so rescue efforts lasted several days and searches for victims lasted months um the very last body to be discovered, uh, that of Cesare Nicolo, uh, lots of Italian immigrants in the area and Irish, mostly Italian at the time. Um, anyway, Cesare Nicolo's body was found about four months later. It had been swept out to sea. Oh, God. And they found him underneath the commercial wharf. So that's sad. But they found him. So the cleanup took about 87,000 man hours. And it was estimated to have caused a litter, little over $105 million in damages to the city. And that was $105 million in 1919. Which is a fucking... Sh- that's... <laughs> a metric shit fortune now? Yes. Is that <laughs> That's 105 million fuck tons. <laughs> I don't even know. 
it's, it's a, it's an amount that my brain will never fathom. That's for sure. Um, the entire city was soon covered in sticky molasses, obviously, as rescuers and survivors that left the area um, managed to track it onto trolley seats, platforms, public phones, sidewalks, like anywhere a person would go. <laughs> uh, the water in the harbor was brown from January until midsummer because they, uh, yeah, was just molasses harbor water. <laughs> um, because fireboats used their hoses, so like they suck the water, the seawater up and blast the actual land to try and clean it off because I mean, how else are you gonna do it? So all that runoff stayed, just stayed there. <laughs> um, it was also said that Boston smelled of molasses, especially on hot days, for decades. <laughs> um, in February of 1919, just a month after the disaster, Wilfred Bolster, the chief judge of Boston Municipal Court, released his findings from the investigation of the accident. Um, and he stated that the tank itself was to blame as it was not structurally sound. It was brown though. I mean, <laughs> so you couldn't tell. <laughs> um, he also held Purity's parent company, United States Industrial Alcohol. I will call them now USIA because that's a lot to say every time I'm going to have to say that. Um, he held them to be guilty of manslaughter. However, when he took his finding, you know, when they took his report to trial, the jury agreed that yes, the tank was faulty, but they weren't gonna charge the company with manslaughter. So naturally, um, this pissed everyone off. And um, by August of 1920, 119 separate civil suits had been filed against USIA. Um, at the preliminary hearing, there were so many lawyers and plaintiffs crowded into this courthouse that the judge was like, uh-uh, <laughs> there's no way that we're going to do all of this separately. Um, he consolidated all the cases. He appointed one lawyer for each side, like everyone against this company, you all have that lawyer right now this company and your team of lawyers, pick one, that's your one lawyer. Um, and then he appointed a, um, I lost my place. There we go. Um, he appointed an auditor to hear the evidence and compile a report as to the liability and the basically like Sort out what who gets how much and whatever. Kind of like the Mueller report, like do all the investigations, get all your stuff together, do some hearings, then give me a report, and then we'll decide if, if, when, what, how we're gonna take it to trial. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so um, Hugh W. Ogden was the Boston lawyer that was assigned to the auditor role and. The hearings before him began August 9th of 1920. Um, USIA based their defense on their theory that they um, had come up with. They said that Italian anarchists bombed the tank. Um, they claimed that um, they, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Italian anarchists. I mean, which there actually were a group of Italian anarchists at the time, citing um, various things. Basically, they weren't even really anarchists. They were just the precursor to workers' rights stuff. So yeah, um, anyway, so the company claimed to have gotten calls threatening this tank just days prior to the disaster. 
um, and that leaflets had been spread in the area by this Italian anarchy group. Um, the plaintiffs, so our victims and everybody in, that dealt with this, uh, argued that the tank was the problem and that the company was negligent. They presented actual evidence of the material used to construct the tank, saying it was way too thin, which it was, um, and that um, they used far too few rivets um, to hold it together, which also was true. Um, they also spoke to the ineptitude of the man in charge of construction as he was actually a financial advisor, not wow. in construction. Yeah. Um, so they said that there was no way he could have had the knowledge required to oversee a project like that and to understand plans the way he needed to. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. You know how to do cool, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> you know numbers. You know numbers, right? It's fine. Money, construction, totally, totally the same. <laughs> they go together. So you can do it. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> uh, and they said that an actual engineer would have been required for this job. I kind of agree. Um, <laughs> they also presented evidence of the job being rushed and not tested before use. Uh, the hearing before Ogden took three years, 921 witnesses, 1,584 exhibits presented by lawyers, and it all compiled to a $25,000 25,000-page <laughs> transcript Damn. of all of this shit. <laughs> um, it took Ogden a full year to go over all of the evidence before him. Um, and it ended up being the longest, most expensive civil suit in Massachusetts history. Um, on April 28th, 1925. So five and a half years after this thing happened, uh, Ogden gave his 51 page long report to the Supreme Court judge that had appointed him. Ultimately, he found the, that USIA was at fault and recommended they pay about $300,000 in damages of 1915 money or 1925 money. Um, he stated the evidence was just not there at all to support their defense. And it was overwhelmingly present for the plaintiffs. Uh, he said, um, oh, having received his report, the company very quickly settled out of court and paid just a slightly higher amount than Ogden had suggested in his report, basically because they gave, because it was split up like survivor, family of survivor, or I mean, sorry, families of victims got a certain amount, the city got a certain amount, the transportation company, like it was split up as you know, civil suits do. Um, and so when they settled out of court, they ended up, it was a little higher because they gave the victims' families a bit more money. Um, as a result of this tragedy, though, the city of Boston and soon after that, every single other place in the, in the U.S. Um, required by law that future construction jobs uh, submit their plans to the city's building department and that they be approved by an engineer or an architect. Gosh, harsh. I'm just kidding. I feel like that's basic shit right there. I mean, it is basic to us now, but I mean, it just wasn't then. People were like, I'm going to build a building and I, I'm going to, here you go. I, it's my land. I can build something, whatever I want. So it's, they still studied this case for years and, excuse me, last year, leading up to the 100-year anniversary, um, they were 
kind of sending it out to various engineers and colleges and professors and to kind of say, you know, what if this were to like, you have the technology and knowledge now that we have for safety standards and everything. So based on what we know now, what do you say about what happened? And so a hundred years later analysis were um, pinpointed a handful of other factors that combined to make the incident. So like I said, the heating and cooling of it, since they, it was frigid temperatures of winter, they heated it, poured it in, and then it cooled kind of quickly. But then the very next day on the 15th, when it actually happened, um, it was a strange warm day for winter and it got up to 40 degrees. So it went from freezing to just above freezing, freezing in a short amount of time. And that metal that they used, it did not contain enough manganese, which meant it was a more brittle metal. So it was way more likely to burst. Also, it was way too thin. Also, far too few rivets, like they knew. Um, and then, um, yeah, so that was kind of the main things. The rest, it's just kind of, if you really want to get down to all of the scientifics of it, you can look it up. Obviously, we always post all of our sources on our website, though. Please go to that. And I mean, there just there is a ton more information, but I had to kind of compress it. I'm making all these hand movements for you. <laughs> I'm appreciating them. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, so you know, it it was an ethic thing. They cared more about their bottom line, trying to make their money as quick as possible, than they did trying to make sure their town was fine. They, were, they had the whole, it's not going to happen to me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah, so. A lot of companies still do that. Uh -huh. Like, hit corners for, oh, nobody will even notice. It's going to be fine. Nothing bad will happen. Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, not great. Next thing you know, people are dead. 21 people are dead. 150 people injured. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, the, um, shirt fire story is the same mm. mm -hmm. like they were just working people to the fucking bone yeah yeah who cares if the windows and doors don't work on this side of the building use the other side of the building okay. <laughs> oops there's a fire there <laughs> that's fine i'll just teleport to the other side yeah i'm gonna walk through fire <laughs> I'm making weird motions. Sorry, that doesn't translate for podcasts. <laughs> How many uh, like shower thoughts this week? I actually don't. Um, other than I had the realization that as summer is coming to an end and school is going to be remote, i.e., I am one of Layla's new teachers. Well, old, she gets to have one of her old teachers again, I guess. <laughs> um, I'm realizing I'm really going to have to manage my time better throughout the day. It's, it's going to be nuts. Yeah, we were talking about that a little. Mm -hmm. We started recording. Because, yeah, the world we're living in right now is not very stable for a lot of people yeah. and is proving to be very stressful. Yeah. Yeah. As we're recording this, it's uh, the 19th of August. And by the time this comes out on, was that? Oh, Labor Day is when this is coming out. Happy Labor Day, folks. Um, <laughs> and Layla will be on her second day of school that day. And I will be losing my mind because, <laughs> you know, the laws of nature, there's going to be an issue. <laughs> it's not great. 
Yeah. Yeah, I was telling you earlier, my I'm starting to be worried that, you know, the COVID guidelines, which are perfectly in line and reasonable, yeah. we can only provide because there's so many cases still, you know, in our area. Right. So I don't work in a restaurant. I work in a beer bar. Thankfully mm -hmm. for us, we have a parking lot big enough to facilitate, like, uh, bigger than a lot of restaurants have space-wise for allowing distance and having tables and seating for folks outside. Yeah. Which is super, except we live in Seattle and mm -hmm. we only have like a month at most, uh, unless we get like some crazy weird Indian summers being like crazy long and goes into October, which like never fucking happens. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but otherwise, uh, if cases don't go down, I, my job might just end when fall comes, which is not great. Um, yeah. Listening to what all that means before this, but right now, uh, on a lighter and more distracted note, <laughs> I've been dealing with that stress is somebody, well, Daniel was told about this from somebody else. And he mentioned it to me and we started watching it and it was like the most childish and funny fucking thing I've ever seen. Oh. But we were watching Flora's Lava. I saw that you even turned your sister into watching this and she was like, holy hell, why do I like this now? What is going on? I'm like, but it's so funny. I know. I'm like, well, I know. That's right. She's like, it's not real lava. And we're like, um, I mean, yeah, you can't really... <laughs> Uh, if you haven't seen it, you should check it out because it's really funny and it'll at least entertain you for a while, but it is it's pretty funny. Um, somebody probably got really stoned and was like, oh man, remember when we were kids and we used to play Floor and Lava and then also really liked the show Wipeout? That's basically what. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> so that's yeah, my, my brother, so my technically my stepbrother, but he's been my sibling the longest. So I just call him my brother. Um, Matthew, he texted me one day when that had, I think it had only been out for a week or so. And was like, oh my God, do you remember when we used to piss off our parents by making too much noise on Saturday and Sunday mornings too early because we were playing that the floor was lava? <laughs> he's like, there's our show. <laughs> That's exactly what happened to me. I was like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so I watched it a little bit with Layla and she was very entertained. So it was great. <laughs> it's so pretty fun. Mm -hmm. um, not as fun. Uh, just updating some folks that listen know that um, we have a dog named Blix. By mm -hmm. we, I mean, well, not you and me. <laughs> And uh, I do. <laughs> just the last, uh, well, it's been almost a full week now. He yeah. had to have 20 teeth removed. Yeah. That wasn't great either. So we were, thankfully, he's recovered really well. He's already back to his normal self and then some. So that's good. Yeah. It has been a full week because remember, it was the day before we recorded last week. Yeah. yeah. So now he's just as happy and smiley as ever. <laughs> well, uh, vampire teeth. He just has like, all you can see up front are his little canines on both sides, top and bottom. And he's just like, <laughs> I <know. laughs> <Pretty cute. laughs> it, is, it is pretty, pretty funny. <laughs> like nibbler than ever now. I definitely. Oh my gosh. No kidding. <laughs> Well, he's not in pain, and that's good. <laughs> Man, these animals we love. I know it. Um, what else? We've been um, running a contest, which we, folks listening to this now will probably already know about it, but it's a yeah. thing that I think I'm going to do a few times a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're going to be trying to get you guys to tell us what stories you want us to tell for that episode. We're going to list the specific number. We're running uh, a test. And it's on Instagram specifically. So it's going to be 
tagging us individually and the podcast Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, telling us what your favorite episode is overall and why is good to know. It's good feedback for us. Yep. But yeah, so sorry. And you have a chance to win. It'll be exciting. By the time this comes out, so by Labor Day, we will have already run the contest. Um because of our recording schedule, we are now two weeks ahead. So we record and then it comes out in two weeks. Um, so yeah, if you missed it and you catch our 25th episode and feel like that was fun, I want to be a part of it next time, just stay tuned because we will do it again on 50th episode. So posting and blasting about it a couple weeks in advance to give you guys time yeah. to post it and also think about what you want the story to be. Yeah. Uh, and obviously to give us time to research it too would be lovely. <laughs> research time is key. <laughs> Otherwise it's a very weird rambling story and you've probably heard a few of those from me before. <laughs> As life happens. <laughs> That's all right. Yeah. Well, uh, shall we close out our tab and say goodbye until another Monday? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, until next Monday, uh, drink good local beer. And please skip your fucking bartenders. Now more than ever. for more information we can be found on instagram at seattle underscore on underscore tap email at seattle on tap at gmail.com or our website seattle on tap.com you can also like us on facebook and all of the Seattle on Tap original music is provided by Bubble Bathism, courtesy of the Subterranot Recording Collective.